Amen. Please open your Bibles, <clears throat> excuse me, with me. It's Colossians chapter 2. As I mentioned, we're going to be finishing out Paul's very powerful polemic today. His great argument against these false teachers. We're going to look at verses 20 to 23. And dealing with a very real present day danger. Asceticism. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. The word of God says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray one more time. Father, as we open this passage and look into your, the richness, the gold of your truth, I pray, God, for your Spirit's quickening work, both in speaker and hearer alike, of the real, very present dangers that we will and do and are encountering. Father, I pray that in this we will find truly find and experience, and for some begin to experience the reality of the Spirit's power and work in and through our lives as we heed and obey God's Word, your Holy Word, to recognize and pursue the richness of it in its ability to transform from within and to guard us from those things which pollute from without. So I pray, Father, for discernment. I pray for ears to hear. I pray for eyes to see and behold you, to behold Christ by faith. And to receive what you have to say through your messenger from your word today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So as I said today, we're going to look at Paul's final section of the three arguments that he has been giving. Very feisty arguments, very direct arguments with great warnings against these false teachers and what they've been proposing. And today we're going to look at, in verses 20 to 23, as I said, the dangers of asceticism. And just real briefly, the the outline again, I want to refresh our memories, because I know I need it. The breakdown of Paul's letter so far, we, we looked at his powerful doctrinal section from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 3 of the gospel work, the work that Epaphras brought 
in proclaiming the gospel and seeing the gospel's work and bringing new life and bearing fruit. We went through the hymn of Christ, the glorious realization, the recognition and worship of Christ and all of his sufficiency, of his reconciling work, of his wisdom and the depths of the wisdom and knowledge that are all found in Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of this chapter, which we're going to finish today, is, is as I said, is Paul's polemical, his, his argumentative, pointed engagement with these opponents. And he's presenting his case to the Colossians and to us, arguing that no one will deceive you or delude you. His, his pastoral heart is coming out and a desire to protect these dear saints, that they will not be led down this appealing path into deception. And he gives us in this paragraph very plausible arguments. And he starts out in verse 8, which is his starting point. You could describe this in simple terms, a simplistic way as as humanism. In verse 8, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. He's showing us that this humanistic way of thinking is, is man-centered. It is man-focused. And it is this common thread through these remaining three detailed, expanded, plausible arguments. Remember, we went through, first was legalism, verses 16 to 17. That's, and that, that thinking, that whole methodology, that, that appeal is that somehow we can earn God's favor through our own personal performance. And it comes, as we looked at several weeks ago, in many forms. It's expressed in many ways. But the basic notion is that I can merit, I can acquire God's favor through my personal performance. And then we saw in, in last time in verses 18 and 19, mysticism, this, this very deceptive root. And it, it, it's for me and for anyone to believe that I can attain somehow an immediate, direct knowledge of God and with God through just my own personal experiences, that a personal revelation is possible apart from God's word. Not necessarily denying that God's, the Bible is God's word, but that in addition to his word, I believe revelation is something that God can give me directly, that he can speak to me in my feelings and my emotions and my experiences, which are all subjective Nothing external or objective as God's word is when it's read and taught and preached coming to us. But all of this is derived from within. And we see kind of a mixture, a a mixture of the themes here in in these verses from 16 to 23. They're, They're intertwined, but I wanted to designate and separate them out for us so we can clearly identify and see each of Paul's Plausible, plausible arguments. And today, as, as I've said, we're going to look at asceticism. And a very simple definition, I'll start there and then we'll get into a little bit deeper one, but a simple definition of asceticism is that I can achieve communion with God through personal and physical and external deprivation of various forms. That I can somehow achieve a, a closeness to God through my own personal, physical, external deprivation of various forms. And we'll get into those. And all three of these, all three of these arguments, these proposals by these false teachers, 
are very dangerous, and they're very real today. They will derail believers. And anyone who has been derailed from the faith and dependence upon Christ, I believe they can directly tie their derailment back to one of these three areas in their lives. They can trace back the the, the redirection where they begin to, to veer off from the course of Christ and his gospel. And the reason is, as I said, they're very plausible. They're very appealing arguments. They're all dangerous. They're, very, they're attractive to us in some degree and measure. And that's true, true of any of us, pastor included. And even today, their especially attempt, potential is great to derail us, but, but particularly mysticism. And think about this. Why, why is this? Well, if we look at these, just an overview right now of the three, legalism, mysticism, asceticism. I believe that re- the reason is that legalism and asceticism, as believers, we're, we're kind of quicker to identify these things. We're a little bit more able by the Spirit's power, by the Word of God, to identify, and even through a brother and sister, a rebuke or a correction to bring us back on track from, from a performance mindset. Um, from what we see today is, is an ascetic, natural, physical depri- deprivation through really physical abuse of our bodies, thinking that through that we can attain, attain some spiritual higher order. And typically, as I said, we're, we're able to respond to this a little bit quicker as believers to receive that correction. But mysticism is very real and prominent danger today, and it's, it's rampant evangelicalism because it's permeated to, of many of today's so-called churches and even sound churches. And there's an understanding of that revelation today of, of God speaking directly to me, not the Bible, but what I've heard from God personally, what I've experienced about God and my feelings, emotions, and hearing that voice inside, which is really not God at all, but simply your own voice. It's a danger that fuels and stirs pride. And, and develops a, a religious, spiritually deceptive pride that because I have this direct line, this direct experiential connection with God and he speaks to me, this then becomes a, a perceived spiritual maturity and the basis for, for that pride to grow. As believers, those who trust in Christ and, and rely upon his word, We must remember that we do rely on his voice and his speaking comes to us, but it is only through the word of God. As we read it, as we gather to hear it preached, as we pray through it, and as his word is held in high esteem and and in high doctrinal value for what it is and the preeminence that it deserves, it is higher than our own subjective experiences and our own emotions. And where God and where he is speaking objectively through his word to us from outside of ourselves, when it's being expounded and proclaimed and whereby Christ is dwelling within us through the Holy Spirit, conforming and transforming us, that word becomes, we are become by the word of God into the likeness and the person of Christ. Now, if you'd like a fuller definition of asceticism, here we go. One who is an an ascetic is one who's living a lifestyle that is characterized by excessive abstinence, 
Not, not in a simple, superficial form, but one who's rigorous in self-denial, being extremely frugal, exercising renunciation of material possessions and pleasures, and in many examples, either depriving themselves of food for extended periods of time, or even as some examples I read about, eating garbage and discarded food items. But listen, listen, at the heart of all this, the motivation of all this in asceticism, behind it all is for the ascetic, the ascetic thinking is to somehow gain a greater spiritual reality, a greater spiritual understanding, and that this extreme physical deprivation is associated with some self-willed humility, and it enables them to pursue this so-called lofty, spiritual goal and closeness to God. And this, this belief system, whether in its various aspects of asceticism, seen in many religious systems like Buddhism, um, Jainism, Hinduism, even Judaism, and they even have its own ascetic theology. And this latter part, this ascetical theology, was, was a perverted extraction from the scriptures that came about in the second and third centuries through monasticism, and that developed later on into Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy. But there was birthed a movement, a very dangerous movement, that involved monks, monks, monasteries, monasticism. And it was founded by Anthony, who, by the way, never, never changed his clothes and never washed his feet, But he held and promoted this idea that to be a real follower of Christ, one needs to step out and away from the world in total seclusion, to deprive yourself of all the basic necessities, even food and drink, even sleep, even marriage, even the marital bed, of all material things, depriving yourself of all the things that God has given us to enjoy in this world. But his thinking was that through this personal deprivation, and with this proposed threefold pathway of bodily purification, of, of contemplation of this divine essence, not really the true God, that you'll somehow derive, arrive at this divine union, that somehow you'll achieve and attain this, this really a false perception of being in closer communion with God, a special union that's only known and shared by the ascetic. Just think about this, how contrary this is to Scripture, how opposite it is from biblical faith. For anyone born again, they're born again from the beginning, from their starting point is union with God. To be a true Christian through faith in Christ alone is to be united with Christ, to be in union with him. But I'll get to that more of that later. And this is all what Paul has been emphasizing and reminding and declaring to these saints Remember back in verses 9 to 15 that in him, in Christ, they are what? Made complete. They have been circumcised in his death. They have been buried with him, raised with him. All determined and accomplished by God and not man. So you're probably thinking, scratching your head, what is the pastor going through all this boring insights into the monasticism and threefold paths of this higher spirituality, this greater experience with God, because it's finding its way into many of the books that are out there today in the evangelical world, into many bookstores, not in our bookstore, I can guarantee you that. 
But these writers today, these so-called prominent writers, they're going back to this stuff. They're going back to mysticism. They're going back to asceticism. And all these teachings they, they bring into their books and they try to dissuade, not, not blatantly, not confrontationally, but subtly pervert the true gospel. And their appeal is that they bring a few good points out about spiritual life, about spiritual growth, about maturing in, in spiritual truths. And then they subtly introduce that there's some greater climactic, greater experiential goal out there. And then they begin introducing these three different methods, three different paths that lead us into this false ascetical bondage. So be careful what you read. So with that introduction, I want to read again these four verses for today's study. For if you, have, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees? I want to stop there and go down to verse 22. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now we're going to look at this paragraph, these four verses, under five main headings, five main points. First is the danger of asceticism. Verse 20, the first part. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world? Paul's warning here of the dangers and the threat of asceticism to his readers is that it is enslaving. It is a dangerous peril. Why do you want to go and enslave yourselves, put yourselves back in bondage to these regulations, especially if you had died to this humanistic thinking through Christ? Because it's in these rudiments of humanistic thinking where the roots of demonic activity are actively sowing deception in this world. And they're looking to sow it in and among God's people in the church. Even though, as Paul says in verse 15, that that these spiritual threats have been defeated by Christ. They have been put on public display as defeated spoil of the great war. He warns us that the real danger is when we begin to veer away into asceticism, when you have re-entered into this worldly way of thinking and into bondage under this elemental spiritual realm, it's a very serious threat and dangerous to any believer to open yourselves up to that again. And he's also saying that since you were also circumcised in the removal of the body of flesh, the old man, the old sinful nature by the circumcision of Christ. You've now been separated. There's a powerful preposition here, too. And there it, it carries with it the intent that you have been severed through this death away from these elementary principles and these spirits in the world, these rudiments in the world. And it is such a death that these principles no longer carry any weight of authority over us. And they shouldn't be allowed to do so again. We're not to go back to them. We're not to consider them again. That in our death with Christ, we too have died to that law and are now free to live in the fullness of our salvation to him and in him. 
And this is also what Paul talks about in Galatians 2, verses 18 to 21. If you will, turn over there with me. Three books back, Galatians 2. We're going to look at verses 18 and 20 through 21 just briefly. Paul says here, For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You know this verse well. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And what Paul is telling us here in Galatians is about building up in the faith in Christ, objectively. And he is saying that if we base any hope upon the law, that if we attempt to fulfill any aspect of the law as a means to salvation, is completely contrary to the principle of salvation that is based solely on the merits of Christ and his redemptive work, which is only apprehended by faith. But how much more contrary is it then for these Colossians and even us to base any hope upon these mere human ordinances concocted by men under the power of this world order and under these elementary, elemental spiritual principles, especially to return to them as a means of some greater spiritual enlightenment and fulfillment. Second point is the components of asceticism. Components of asceticism. And we start at the end of verse 20 and go into verse 21. It says, do not submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are regulations of a submitting yourself to decrees that these false teachers are proposing. But aren't regulations good? Aren't they beneficial? Can they be bad? Well, the law is good. It is holy. It is right. It is perfect. That's true, but what Paul is exposing here is not God-given regulations, but those from man. And Paul uses a very strong verb here for submitting yourself, especially to these decrees. And it's only used here in in Colossians 2.20. Dogmatizo is is in its lexical form, its base form, and he Paul uses it here because Paul suspected in his readers hear this, Paul suspected in his readers that there's a hidden tendency in all our natures to be to listen to, to to be charmed by these decrees because they are appealing to our natures. And they bear within their adherence the danger of derailing us. Paul goes on to give us these three examples, which were actually quotes from these false teachers, attempting through these decrees to to impose this ceremonial yoke on these members in Colossae as as something which would ensure them this transcendental purity and, and bring them into this magical connection with the spiritual world. And he says, do not handle, which is a better rendition, is do not eat, do not taste, do not even touch. And these regulations here specifically, obviously talking about food and drink, are rooted in this philosophy of asceticism. And they're not good. 
they, they convey the falsehood that the root of my problem is my body. That my body is evil. That if I subdue and deprive my body of these physical things, I will subdue the evil. And then I'll be guaranteed a higher level of spirituality. A, a new closeness to God. But we've got to realize this. We've got to consider this. There is never a path of true spirituality simply through prohibitions as they can do nothing to create new life within that only God can do. Outward conformity will not do anything to the heart. Our third point, the error of asceticism. The error of asceticism. And Paul gets into this in verses 22 to 23. And he says these, of these things which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. And we, we see within this heading, this, under this error of asceticism, three parts here. First, in verse 22, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. Asceticism focuses only on things that are temporary, only on those things that are of no eternal consequence or value, only on those things that are trivial. And what Paul stresses here in this parenthetical statement is that it's so foolish for anyone to base any hope for victory over sin, and especially for salvation, or for any means of spiritual growth through anything pertaining to that which is intended for destruction, through its natural order, its natural purpose. And this is what Christ himself instructs us in Matthew fifteen seventeen. He says, Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? You see, God in, in his goodness and in his providence, he created food and drink for the purposes of nourishing the body, for our enjoyment, for his glory. But it's to be taken through the mouth, enjoyed for his glory, fulfill its purpose in nourishing his temple, and it's expelled. And it's a grave error to think that depriving what is to be for the temple of the Holy Spirit of God, giving sustenance, is some means of gaining some higher spirituality. It's foolishness and it's serious error. The second error under this third part is found in verse 22. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. This is all man-centered. It is man-based. It is man-focused. And these, are, these descriptions of these regulations are said to be in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men because they're derived what, from what man determines is best. Man who lives in a delusive state, man who is deceived by these demonic activities and enslaved to the system of the world in his own heart. This is what Christ himself encountered and dealt with when confronting the spiritual leaders in Israel. Where Christ quoted from Isaiah 29, 13, where he says to these men, these, these hypocritical Pharisees, who are adding to the law of their own traditions and commandments to burden even their own converts to hell themselves. And Isaiah 29, 13 says, Then the Lord says, Because this people draw, draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, 
but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Traditions of men thought to bring spiritual superiority, but only weigh down in deception and ultimately destruction. And this third part, at the end of verse 23, there are no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul is saying that the language, what is proclaimed, what is touted by these false teachers, and what they have conveyed about their self-made religion is referring back here to verse 18 in the worship of the angels, which is purported to occur through their means of self-abasement. Again, from verse 18, it is their sham humility, it is their false humility, and that also through these rituals of severe depravity and treatment of their own bodies, in all these matters there are no value, but this is their means of their higher spirituality. And Paul's concern is that they have made an impression on the readers of this letter, that they've considered just how serious and seemingly godly, godly these propagandists were. But it is all useless. Why? As I said, because neglecting the body will never cure the soul. It does not address the issue of the flesh, the sinful nature, not the body. It is the sinful heart of man. And this is, again, what Christ was addressing in Matthew 15, to to paraphrase that nothing outside of man that can go into man will defile him. It is what comes out of the mouth, out of the heart, that defiles the man. Why? Because the origin of all our sin is the flesh, and the flesh being the corrupt human heart, the sinful human heart. The problem resides always within the heart of every man, woman, and child. But asceticism always looks upon and deals with the peripheral issues outside of man, deals with the perishable things because it is all rooted in humanistic thought. Back to our main five points, we're at number four here. The attraction of asceticism. The attraction of asceticism. And this is in verse 23. These matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. What we just looked at, these matters, they all have a great attraction. They, they look good in their appearance. They're, they're appealing. It, it's a tangible aspect of man-made religion and through the treatment of the body that there's this appeal, you know, Look at their life, man, how, how strict they are, how, how they sacrifice so much, all the suffering and, and deprivation they go through and the great suffering. And look, look at their relationship and communion with God. Man, they are, they are so holy. They look, that looks so good. God must be so pleased with them and all that they do and all that they share in this great communion with God. But it is all an illusion. It's a great delusion. Just consider for a moment, have, have any of you ever been under severe physical duress or stress or distress, any survival camp extremes, any situations where you've had to go without sleep for extended periods of time or gone without food or drink or, or even proper protection from the elements being outside? If you have, then you know that our minds are capable of some pretty remarkable, sometimes frightening things in these occurrences. 
And these can be used deceitfully as spiritual truths. I know in my, my first job at a college working in the oil field, work with many field engineers, and to hear the stories of them being out in the field logging wells for day after day after day, and the things they would begin to see out in the remote areas of Wyoming and Montana, the multiple colored elephants the size of the scorpions, the, the movement of the ground when nothing was really happening, all because of this physical deprivation and duress they were under for the job. It's a reality. So the very real danger, the warning is don't label experiences like this as something from the Lord, a word from God, a spiritual experience. And this is Paul's warning. Don't let anyone delude you in this, that no one take you captive in these thinkings because of some external physical depravity that they now have this direct line, this, this spiritual intuition within them. Fifth and lastly, Paul gives us the solution to asceticism. The solution to asceticism. But we ran out of verses. We go back to verse 20. Paul begins there, the if, the a in Greek. It's, it's not a question of doubt. It is, it is sense, as in the case of what Paul's already described, and the reality of these believers, of these readers, according to what is found in verses 11 to 12. The reality is, and since in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, external to you, spiritually done, in the removal of the body of the flesh, not the physical body, but the sin nature, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Since you have died with Christ, since you are already united with Christ, if you have received him by faith, you are already at the starting point. Our union with Christ is not the goal. For the believer, our union with Christ is not the goal. It is the beginning. It is the starting point. Yes, we will have an ultimate union in glory where faith will become sight, where the incorruptible will put on incorruptible. But for the already, that's the not yet, but the already, we have, we have been united with Christ. If, in fact, you have been born again by the Spirit of God. And this rebirth, as Paul describes it, is that spiritual circumcision brought about by Christ. Not by the hands of man, not by the will of man, but by the, the power of man, but by the Holy Spirit and putting off the body of the flesh. Not our bodies, remember, but the body of our flesh, our sin nature. It is our problem of sin because we are riddled with sin in the inner man and in our hearts. And when we become one with Christ, we become one with him first legally, which means by virtue of our union with him, he has dealt fully and finally to the utmost with the penalty of my sin and your sin. Amen? Amen. Through faith in him, his death is my death. His burial is my burial. His resurrection is my resurrection. He paid the fullness of the penalty against me, making us one with him. And now God sees us as literally debt-free because of Christ. 
And we're not only one with him legally, but we are also one with him virtually because not only has he paid the penalty for all my sin, but he's broken its power. He has freed us from its dominion. Our lives are now lived by faith in Jesus Christ. And by virtue of the Holy Spirit, we we receive his illumination of the word where the heart is now made fleshy, now made sensitive to his instruction and truth. Now with a new love toward our Heavenly Father that we never had before. And now a will wonderfully liberated now to love and obey God, to serve God, to love one another, even our own enemies, as God loved his enemies. And to serve his people through the good works that have been prepared for us to walk in. And it is all because we are now one with Christ. And this is the solution to this. This, this means for us as believers in our union with Christ, we have received everything we are going to get. Do you realize this? Do you, do you believe this? We are and have been made full. We have been made complete in him. There is nothing more than the Lord Jesus. And by virtue of our union with him, with Jesus, we are now in union with the Father. And we are now as close to God, as close to Christ, as we will ever be. This is what communion with him is all about. So let me ask you the same question I ask myself. Are you enjoying your communion with God? Is it for you, believer in Christ, a daily reality that you tenaciously hold fast to the head and devote yourselves to the means of grace, this this external objective word of God that enters into our minds and our hearts and through which we hear his voice and as his word is implanted and grows in the heart by faith, that we are conformed ever more and more into his likeness? Is this a present and ever-increasing reality? So you may be asking, is he getting close to the end? (laughs) What does all this have to do with me? All, All these examples of discussion of asceticism, of depriving the body, of these higher spiritual realities, how does this apply to me? Well, the warning and the declaration is that we are all susceptible to this, but in far more subtle forms. Let me, let me give you some several examples just to consider as I was just meditating over this. This is a, a, a way of, of warning by application, if you will. First, I'm going to wake up every day at 4 a.m. to pray for two hours. Good or bad? Good if I want to spend my time and make the best time and best use of my time with the Lord, given the demands of my particular day and schedule. Bad if our thinking that we're depriving ourselves of sleep and just filling a two-hour time slot will weaken the power of sin in me and make me closer to God. Second, I'm determined to fast every Monday good or bad. Good if I want to use physical hunger 
to remind me of my far greater spiritual hunger and need of God and to depend on him more and to spend time in prayer for others, to pursue his word. Bad? If I think there's something meritorious in fasting that it will make me less vulnerable to sin and therefore more spiritual and closer to God. Third, I'm going to get rid of my computer, my iPad, and my TV. Good or bad? Good if you're wasting time and watching trash and determine it, it is best for my best interest to get rid of these influences so they do have more time to spend with the Lord, to read his word, to be with his people. Bad if you think that this mere act of getting rid of these items will address the root cause of my sin and make me more spiritual and closer to God. Fourth, I'm going to become a missionary. Good or bad? Good. If God has called you and equipped you to go to an unreached people to learn a new language in order to take to them the gospel of Christ, amen. God's blessing upon you. But it's bad if I think that the sacrifice of leaving, of learning a new language, of living in another culture will make sin less enticing to me and keep me from sinning and through this somehow make me more spiritual. See, these are very subtle forms of asceticism, how they can affect our thinking, our motivations. And as I said, we're all vulnerable to this. The idea that there are things involving us physically, things that if we simply do, things that in, in and of themselves, that if we simply deprive ourselves of this thing or stop doing this or refrain, we have this lurking tendency that if I'm doing these things, these acts of deprivation, whether they are great or small, that in and of themselves they will make me more spiritual that somehow I can attain a greater level of spirituality and closeness to God. It's this thinking that attempts to only conform in the outward, the the external means, whether by deprivation or or self-discipline, that they are somehow to bring about a closeness to God that in reality is only something that can be achieved through an inward working, a heart transformation of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and in humility toward God. But why is this asceticism so attractive? What, is it, what makes it appealing for us to consider? Well, I've got several more op- options, aspects to look at. Some people are committed to a faulty worldview, to what's called dualism. Duo, meaning two. It's a belief that there are two sections, one spiritual, one material. And the same applies to human nature, one soul and one body. This view says that everything that is physical is evil. Everything is spiritual is good. Same is true for the body. It is evil and it's the source of the problem and that the soul is good. And our good soul is trapped in a bad body. So you need to deaden the senses of the body and food and drink, etc. Deprive yourself and you will release the spiritual of the soul. Isn't this touted in the concept of glory in heaven these days, what people talk about in heaven, that we're just spirits floating around having a wonderful time? Now, Scripture says we will have a renovation of our entire being, the entire universe, 
the resurrection of our, our soul as our, and our body as well. Because we need to remember all of God's creation was very good. The physical realm is not the area of our problem. It is the sin within. Asceticism is attractive because some are motivated by spiritual pride. We love scorecards. We love scoreboards. We like tangibles. We like checklists, physical evidences of success. Making sure that it is all good, that we identify just what it is that we are depriving ourselves of, what we are measuring ourselves by on some list of do's and mostly don'ts. And the list looks good in our eyes. It fuels our pride. It makes us feel better about ourselves. And we do this with the hope that I I sure hope someone is noticing all this, all that I'm doing and not doing. And this was Christ's warning again in Matthew 6.16. Don't put on a gloomy face when you fast. Don't show the evidence in your outward appearance that you're, you're completing your checklist and neglecting your appearance just so that you're noticed by other men. And let it be between you and your Father in heaven. Groom yourself, anoint your head, wash your face. Do it in secret between you and your heavenly Father that see, he will see the purpose of your heart and the desire of your heart and the glory of your fasting. He will receive it and he will bring the reward of it. And there's a danger in striving to have these tangible, identifiable markers for others to notice because then these things become the basis of a person's spirituality in their relationship with God. The, the thinking becomes that as long as these things are in place, as long as I am hitting my outward markers and giving this appearance of my godliness, there is a false assurance that all is well with my soul. And thirdly, This one's pretty powerful. It's attractive because we really don't understand what's meant by the term flesh. Paul uses this term in Romans 7.18 when he says, Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Flesh is not talking about our bodies, our physical bodies. He's referring to our human nature, our heart, our sinful nature, our hearts that were, if we are believers, that were dead in trespasses and sins, but that nature that is still resident in our bodies. And our mind is not able to think as it should according to God's truth. And without Christ, it remains dark and spiritually ignorant. And our hearts don't crave what they should crave after all sorts of false idols. And therefore, our wills are enslaved to our darkened mind and our hardened and deceptive hearts, and, and that is the flesh. You know, that's an area that Christ talks about very definitively when he talks about those who are taking the kingdom of God by violence. And what he's talking about there is not a violence one against another, but a violence against this sin, this sin nature that remains in us. Let me ask you, who do you think your worst enemy is, your greatest enemy? It's not Satan. My greatest enemy is Lynn Kaler. And that's the greatest battle we fight. And it's a serious battle. It it is a warfare that we will struggle with until we die or we are taken home in glory. That's why Paul so powerfully says, I have fought the good fight of faith. Because it is a fight of faith. 
It is not a fight against our physical body, but against the nature that uses our body to satisfy its lust. And if we are not taking this warfare, this battle seriously, what are we doing? Are, are we playing with Christ? Are we toying around with Christianity? Our salvation is not an entry into Disneyland. It is enter to warfare, a very serious warfare. And it can only be fought and won day by day by the Spirit of God, by submitting ourselves humbly to his word and to his spirit. That is how we will subdue the works of the flesh, the works of our nature, and deceiving and calling our bodies to fulfill its desires. Fourth, it's, it's attractive because some folks are just frustrated with the church's worldliness. And this is one of the very reasons why monasticism grew, why it has, was such a popular movement at the time. Because it was right after all the persecutions, all the martyrdoms occurred and were taking place where the church was thriving spiritually, they were walking in true piety, that Constantine made the, the church, Christianity, the state religion. And in the third century, the church became fat, became lazy, became weak, became worldly. And so in protest to this worldliness found in the church, the pendulum swung the other way, and they began to form monasteries. These monastics began this separation, looking to this depravity to seek after and to fulfill their, their own will, what's called will worship, and their, form, their own form of spirituality. And we see this today. I mean, I mean, it's, it's disheartening to see what's happening in the so-called church. In many cases, a great lack of zeal, a lack of enthusiasm for the word, for holiness, for the gospel, for, for true piety. And so the tendency arises in a form of protesting that we react and run to the opposite extreme is into asceticism. And it's attractive because some are perplexed by what Christ's call to discipleship really means, too. In Mark 8.34, he says, Let any man take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. We see in this that there are two elements to discipleship, denying self and following Christ. And Christ is not saying by denial that we are to deny the basic essentials and needs of the body. To deny self is to subdue the inordinate passions of the heart, of the flesh, of the sinful nature that remain. To put them to death by the Spirit of God, to mortify them. And to follow Christ is to suffer affliction. One is internal, the other is a result of the internal carried out in the external to suffer with. This is his call to discipleship. Lastly, It's attractive because some are basically puzzled by what scriptures define as moderation. Moderation is basically self-control. I've got a wonderful book quote here I want to read to you. It's from Ed Welch. Wonderful book if you ever want to read it. It's called A Banquet in the Grave. And it's on addictions, all manners of addictions. And Ed Welch says, There is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. 
When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is something about war that sharpens our senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. But even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. There is a mean, violent streak in the true Christian life. But as I talked, said a little bit earlier, violence against whom or what? Not other people. It's a violence against all the impulses in us that would be violent to other people. It's a violence against all the impulses in our own selves that would make peace with our own sin and settle in with a peacetime mentality, a tolerance, if you will. It's a violence against all lust in ourselves and enslaving desires for food or caffeine or sugar or chocolate or alcohol or pornography or money or the praise of men and the approval of others or power or fame. It's violence against the impulses in our own soul toward racism and sluggish indifference to injustice and poverty and abortion. As I said, God has given us many things to enjoy. He has declared them good. And the problem comes when this change of moderation is twisted and becomes a mindset that all these things given to us by God to enjoy, that they must go, that they must be deprived. But to know self-control, to truly enjoy the things that God has given us, it implies three things. I promise this is my last triad. To enjoy all the good things of God's providence first implies we enjoy his good gifts sacredly because they come from outside of us, from him to us, for us to enjoy with understanding that he is the source and with great thanksgiving they are gifts for us and to us. Second, we receive them soberly, not to turn them into an idol to be worshipped, to be consumers of all our time, all of our focus, all our energy at the expense of our true responsibilities and our worship of God. And third, we, too, we are to enjoy them sensibly. We don't make them more important to us or, 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 give, or give them a priority greater than our own souls. God in his benevolence, his, his goodness to us has given us these things because they are good for us to enjoy And they are means to worship him in them. But scripture warns us in our fallen state, our tendency is to do what? We abuse them. We we make them our object of consummation and, and we worship them as idols. So in case you have any remaining questions of the, how do I do this then? How do I live in the reality of what it means to be united in Christ? To, to live and hold fast to the head? How do we avail ourselves of this objective reality of the word of God, of him speaking through his word to us? And the answer comes in chapter 3. And by the grace of God and the will of God, we will get there soon. But in the rest of this letter, Paul addresses very specifically 
How do I do this? How do I grow? How do I enjoy the reality of this closeness that we have, this union with God? And we actually are in God through Christ. So I welcome you. I encourage you. I exhort you to begin reading chapter 3 in preparation. Let's pray. Father, we so thank you for your many and wonderful promises to us through Christ that are yes and amen through him. But the reality of being united in him through the work of your Holy Spirit, through your saving grace, now quickened and made alive in love to you and worship of you and and love to one another and service to one another. But, Father, equally, we thank you for the warnings for the dangers identified to us of what can easily beset us, what can entangle us, what can delude us and derail us. So, Father, I pray that through this we would be given a heightened awareness, a greater sensitivity, a renewed flame of zeal to pursue Christ in your word, to know both these promises and the power of his resurrection life, and to know this warring spirit that resides within to war against our remaining sin. Father, because I pray our desire is to live because your warning is very clear in Romans 8. If we do not live by the Spirit, if we are not putting to death the things of the flesh by the Spirit of God, we will die. So may our hearts be cautioned greatly. May we be humbled intently and deeply and run to you for your abounding grace to overcome sin and to refresh us with that precious eternal life that you have given us through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.